Good morning, Grace Community Church. It's so glad to be with you. I'm Pastor Tannen. I am the children's pastor, and uh, I am normally every Sunday up uh, with your kids, but when Pastor Jim uh, is away and gives me the opportunity, I, I love being with all of you too. So it's a privilege to be with you. I hope you all had a Merry Christmas, and uh, we'll have a great New Year's uh, tonight. New Year's Eve tonight? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, in, in light of Christmas, I thought it'd be cool to tell you about one of the, my favorite Christmas presents that I, that I ever had. Um, I, as, a, as a boy, I grew up on a, on a sheep farm uh, about an hour and a half uh, south of here. And as all, all my growing up years, uh, my dad would tell me stories of, of sheep ranchers out west on their horses, rounding up their sheep, and, and all these different things. I mean, that's, that's how I went to bed, like, most nights, my dad telling me stories uh, like this. And so it was like my dream to get a, a horse or pony or something like that uh, so that I could do something similar. And so I was probably, like, nine or so, and I, had, I, had, I really hadn't been asking for one. My parents just, my dad just knew that I had really, really wanted one. And so one particular morning... My dad wasn't, wasn't there in the house. He normally on a Saturday was, and so I was kind of like, where, where is dad? Like, where did he go? Um, not sure where he went, so I started asking all these questions, and I think my mom was getting a little annoyed, and uh, finally, I saw dad's truck coming down the driveway, and behind the truck was a trailer. Now, growing up on a sheep farm, we brought sheep back and forth from our house, so I was like, Okay, that's kind of strange that he'd be, like, this particular day hauling a load of sheep in. And so my mom, she was like, well, Tanny, your dad just pulled in. Like, why don't you, uh, why don't you go down to the barn and, and see what, uh, what he's doing down there? And so at this point, my nine-year-old mind is just spinning with anticipation. It's, my imagination is swirling. It's like, wow, it, could, could this really be the day? And so I am just getting jazzed up about this. So I like sprint down to the barn. There's snow outside. And as I'm getting up closer to the trailer, I realize just from hearing that that trailer is not filled up with a bunch of sheep. Okay? There's something much bigger on that trailer than some sheep. And so my dad, I mean, he, he's got a big old smile on his face. I'm sure he was really excited about this just almost as much as I was. But he flips the trailer door down. And I look inside, and there stood my very first pony. And as a nine-year-old, I mean, I was, I was pumped. I mean, this thing was really, really cool. And I had all these flashes of thoughts of, like, we're going out in the pasture, rounding up the sheep, all these grand adventures that I would have with this pony. And so I looked at it, and Dad was like, well, what do you want to call it, Tannen? And we decided on the name Tony, because I kind of liked... Tony the Pony. So Tony the Pony began his, his life at our farm, and quickly I realized that Tony, although he was a fantastic idea by my dad, we came to realize that Tony was probably the meanest pony that this country has ever seen. Because I, would, I, I literally could not get into the pen with Tony without him trying to at least bite me or kick me in some form or fashion. Like, he was, he was downright mean. But I kept fighting for him. I was like, man, he, maybe he could turn around. Like, 
I still tried to feed him. I still tried to take care of him. One particular day, he was out way, way far out in our pasture. And he was kind of down in this little valley. And so I, I went to go feed him that night. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to walk out into the pasture, tell him it's time for supper, and uh, he'll come on running. And so I do that, and I kind of creep up over the hill, and I'm looking down, and Tony's kind of down there a little ways. And I yell, hey, Tony, it's time for supper. And immediately, I mean, his ears perk up. He's, he looks up at me. And I mean, he knew this, this horse could eat, okay? I mean, he, that's all he did really was eat, okay? It was good for nothing else. And so I called him, and he starts sprinting, I mean, galloping, full gallop, like right towards me. As a nine-year-old, I'm thinking, this horse is trying to kill me. <laughs> After all my previous encounters with him, this horse has finally got his chance to put me down. And so I'm, I'm kind of freaking out, honestly. And so I turn towards the barn, and I am like, I mean, I'm gold meddling that race right there. I mean, Usain Bolt had nothing on me in that moment as I was sprinting with all of my snow clothes on away from my horse. And this thing is barreling down on me. I mean, every time I look back, I mean, he's getting closer and closer. And finally, there was this, this gate that was kind of running along our pasture. And I was like, I have no other choice. I'm either going to throw myself over this gate somehow, or this horse is going to run me over, and I'm going to be toast, okay? I, was, I had a very, very dramatic thought process as a nine-year-old, okay? Anyways, I throw myself over this gate. I kind of pick myself up, and Tony, I mean, he doesn't even, he doesn't even stop to look at any of that. I mean, he is on a dead run back to our barn. I get back, and he's just filling his face with food. Doesn't think anything of it. Tony was so hungry and he could eat so much. The men that we're going to talk about today were men that were hungry for truth. I mean, they, they, they spent their vocational lives searching and scouring for truth. And they stopped at nothing. Nothing was going to, to stop them. Nothing was going to put them down from finding out what that truth was. These men we like to call them our the wise men. And we are going to conclude our, our Christmas story series by looking into Christmas through the eyes of these peculiar men that Matthew says are from the East. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, our fantastic ushers, they would love to put one in your hand if you just raise that up. That is a gift to you from Grace Community Church um, so that you can follow along this morning. If you're there, Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 12 together. Okay, If you'd all stand with me, we're going to read God's word together. And uh, remember this part of the Christmas story. Starting here in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. 
Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star and they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Thanks, you guys can have a seat. So these wise men, these men that were hungry and searching, nothing was going to stop them from getting to the truth type of guys, these men realized one thing, and this is the one thing that I hope that we step away from this service with, is that Jesus deserves to be worshipped. These wise men, they stopped at nothing to find the truth, and by God's grace and his sovereignty, he led these men right to the feet of our Savior. Jesus deserves our worship but as we come to this, Christ, this part of the Christmas story again, I feel like it's, it's pretty common for us to, to read this part of the story and to just kind of gloss on over who these wise men were and why they were there with Jesus. Because it's very, very important, and it, it can draw us to some very, really, really great lessons um, that we can draw from this story. These wise men were from the east, Matthew says. In the book of Daniel, the Old Testament, we get some further insight into who these guys were and where they were from. The book of Daniel starts out, and Daniel is brought to the land of Babylon in Persia because the Persians had conquered the Judeans. And so as part of their conquering, they brought a lot of servants back to the land of Persia. The land of Persia makes up the modern-day countries of Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and there's several other countries. That was the Persian Empire. And so Daniel, along with many others, went to this land to be servants for King Nebuchadnezzar. And while while Daniel was there, King Nebuchadnezzar would have these dreams. Daniel was a smart guy, He was a servant in King Nebuchadnezzar's courts. And King Nebuchadnezzar had this group of men that were kind of his his counselors. And they were called the wise men. King Nebuchadnezzar was a twisted individual. Very, very twisted man. One minute he's saying this, the next minute he's doing this. But he would have these dreams. These these, dreams. uninterpretable dreams that that he didn't understand. And so he would gather all of his wise men together to interpret the meaning of these dreams. And so one particular dream that he has in Daniel chapter 2, he gathers these men. He's so distraught. He's like, guys, what does this mean? He spews all of it out. And the wise men all look at him and they say, listen, there is no person on earth that can interpret what you have just told us. We cannot interpret this. We may have interpreted other things for you and given you other signs, but we cannot interpret this dream for you. And so King Nebuchadnezzar looks at him and says, fine, I'm going to cut you into pieces and I'm going to turn you and your homes into rubble. Take them to prison. 
And so King Nebuchadnezzar leads all these wise men to, to prison to be put on executioner's row. Daniel, who is now a part of King Nebuchadnezzar's courts, he hears this. And he goes to the executioner and he says, listen, dude, do not kill these men. Do not execute them. I will go and interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So the executioner, I mean, he probably didn't really want to do anything that day. And so he went to, to King Nebuchadnezzar and was like, listen, there's a guy named Daniel. He's saying he can interpret your dream for you. He was ecstatic. He's like, bring him in. What's the worst that can happen? And so Daniel's before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he, and through the power of the Holy Spirit and God speaking through him, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream perfectly. Nebuchadnezzar falls down on his face in front of Daniel saying, your God must be the king of lords, and he is working his power through you. I am going to make you, Daniel, the master of the magi. You, Daniel, are going to be the master of the wise men, in other words. And so Daniel started his ministry in King Nebuchadnezzar's court, fulfilling his role as the master of the wise men. Daniel loved the Lord. His dedication and his devotion to following the Lord is so evident when we look through the pages of Daniel. And it's my belief that as he saved these men's lives... And as he was their leader and their authority figure, it's my belief that some of these men, as he told them about the Old Testament prophecies of the coming king and the coming Messiah, that as these men were hungry for truth and hungry for knowledge, I'm assuming that some of these men said, you know what, we, we want to follow this God too. We want to await this coming Messiah as well. And so then five generations happen, and we've come face, we meet these men that we're talking about this morning. And I believe that God had put it in, in their hearts from five generations past, working through a man named Daniel, who he made king of the wise men, who, gave, who God gave him a position of influence to influence these incredible leaders of this insanely large empire. And then he puts a star in the sky. Now, we could spend a long time talking about the theories of what that star was. It's a common question. What, what was the star? We're not going to get into that. The, the point of the star is that God put it there. God put the star there because God has the power to do that. If God can breathe creation into existence, he can put a star in the sky that leads shepherds to the feet of Jesus and leads wise men thousands of miles away to the feet of our Savior. He has the power to do that. So why is the, why is the history of, of where these men came from and why they were looking for a sign of the Messiah, why is that important? Why is the star important? It's important because God is in control of all of it. We serve a sovereign God. The word sovereign just simply means over all. There is nothing that is outside of God's control and influence. God was, was making and, and intricately working behind the scenes when no one even realized it, forming those relationships that were going to be a, coming forth in the way that we're reading it today. Where these men who had been 
perhaps passed down a faith, a knowledge, a hope from their fathers, began seeking every night in the sky a sign of a star, of a hope that that Messiah had come. I believe God put that in their hearts. And he put the star in the sky, and one night they all went out, and as they were gazing, as they were looking and studying the the astronomy of the stars, they saw one, and they realized that is the one. That is the sign. We are going to go. We are going to follow. We are going to trust, and we are going to go to this new king. And so they do. If you believe that God is sovereign, that he is in control as we read and as we see at this very beginning of this story, that should give us great hope this morning. Because when God is in control of all things, that is a good thing. Because when he's in control, he works out everything in our lives for his glory and our good. Even though we might be walking through some circumstances that just don't seem like they're ever going to end, that are beating us to our knees with despair. If we believe that God is sovereign, we know somehow, some way, even if we don't understand that he is the one in control, that he is the one looking to change us and help us to become more like Jesus. This should also give us hope because if God can put a star in a sky and lead men who are thousands of miles away to the feet of our Savior, you better believe that he can change the heart of someone who has turned their back on the Lord in an instant. He has the power to do that. And so as you are examining your lives, as you're looking out across and you're seeing family members, friends, who possibly have turned their back on the Lord, do not give up on praying for them. God does not want you to stop hoping because he is sovereign, because he is in control. He can change their life. And he wants to use you to continue loving them and pointing them to the hope that is found in our Savior. We can have hope this morning at the very beginning of this story because God is in control, because he is sovereign. And we can worship him because of that. So why did these men come? We found out a little bit who they were and where they came from, but why did they come? The purpose is so clear when they get to King Herod and he asks them where, why they've come, they, they ask him the question, where is this king of the Jews? They're searching. And they say, we saw his star in the east and we have come to what? Worship him. Their ambition, their drive, their motivation is so clear. It's so singular to worship. That's why they've traveled thousands of miles That's why they've given up their time to search for this because they want to worship the king of the Jews, the Messiah that they have heard about. That is why they come. And so they meet King Herod, and what is King Herod's response? He's disturbed. That's putting it very lightly. That word disturbed actually would would mean that he was literally walking around just tearing things apart. He was so mad. I'm sure some of you have been there if, if maybe you're Notre Dame fighting Irish loss, you're throwing stuff at the TV. Maybe that'll be tomorrow, I don't know. But he was angry, he was frustrated. He was irate because he was the king of Israel. 
And so these, these, these men from this distant country coming and saying, hey, where is, this, where is this new king of the Jews? We saw a star. We've come to worship him. Herod was ticked. He didn't want some other coming, upcoming ruler to, to upshoot his throne. He wanted to be the king. But what's interesting is that all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. It's not just Herod. It's all of Jerusalem. They didn't want something coming in and changing their current situation. They wanted the, 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 the status quo. They wanted the, the, the peace that they thought they had at that moment. They didn't want some uprising or rebellion to happen. They just kind of wanted to keep on keeping on. Does that stop these wise men? No. They continue their search. But one thing I think it points out to us is that when we choose to follow Jesus, it's not always going to be sunshine and rainbows. There's going to be times that we follow Jesus, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be hard, we're going to face opposition. I remember for me when I was in high or when I was my freshman year of college when I gave my life to Christ, I remember it well. I came back the very first time after giving my life to Christ, I was sitting in a hot tub with all of my buddies that I'd had from high school. And I began telling them this story. And I remember leaving that night being so confused because none of my buddies understood what had happened. They didn't get why I would make such a decision like I did. And that was really hard for me. That was, that was very, very hard and tough. And, and maybe you've been in similar circumstance where you've made decisions to follow Christ and to trust in him, lifestyle decisions, and people around you just don't get it. They don't understand why you would sacrifice certain things in order to follow this Jesus dude. You're going to find people in your lives, perhaps, that just simply deny Jesus altogether, that want nothing to do with him or his glory. The thing that we need to remember in these moments is that it is not our job to kind of puff our chest up and stand up for God, because God can stand up for himself. God has the power to change someone's heart and put them to their knees in a minute, in a second. He has that power. He has that ability. God wants us to work out of compassion and love as we look to relate and understand this type of opposition and as we look to encourage and love and point those people to the Lord. We're never going to win that type of opposition over with an argumentative spirit or attitude. That kind of opposition God will win over through our compassion and through our love towards them. These wise men continue on. Herod calls all of the the chief priests, the pastors, the religious leaders of Jerusalem and says, listen, guys, these, these wise men have come in saying they've come to worship this new king of the Jews. I know there's some prophecy out there. Where is this king supposed to be born? They say Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2 says Bethlehem, clear as day. The, the king will be born in Bethlehem. He will be the shepherd of Israel's people. And so you would, you would kind of think that the, the, the people in Jerusalem and even Herod would start to, their wheels would kind of start to spin. Like here's this giant group of guys coming to worship this new king of the Jews. Micah 5.2 says, 
that the king, the Messiah, will come from Bethlehem. There's a star that these men are following that is resting over Bethlehem. But these people, the wheels don't spin. They're, They're troubled by this. The incredible truth for us this morning is that God will be worshipped. There's no option there. There's no question. God will be worshipped. And if the Israelites, his own countrymen, will not worship him, he will find people to worship him. The Bible says that if if, if we are silent, that the rocks will cry out the praises of his glory. God doesn't want the rocks to cry out. He wants you to cry out. He wants us to to cry out his praises and his glory. And so God brings these these wise men from the east, thousands of miles removed from Jerusalem. He brings these shepherds previously who were social outcasts to come be at the feet of Jesus. So these wise men, they finally see the star resting over this home and it says they are overjoyed. They are so excited. I mean, you've probably all been there to some extent when you've gone on a long road trip. Maybe if, you've, if you have kids. Honestly, it doesn't matter if I have kids or not. I just, sometimes I hate driving long distances. And so you get done with that road trip, and how do you feel? Relieved. Like you are just so glad that that drive is over. You've probably been there. But that is not the joy, that is not the relief that these men are feeling. These men are feeling the joy and the relief of finally coming to their destination where they are going to have the opportunity to worship. Because that was their purpose. That was their drive. That's what drew them thousands of miles to be right there in that moment. Now these men, I want you to get this picture in your mind. Sometimes we've pictured these these wise men as maybe like three guys on camels and maybe they're dingy and and sandy from the traveling across the desert but what's most likely is that these men who were second to only the king they would have been traveling with every resource imaginable they most likely would have been traveling on persian stallions because that's what persian royalty traveled in they weren't traveling on camels that were ordinary customs for the day, they rode into Bethlehem, and Bethlehem had never seen anything like this before. The lavishness that these men had was incomparable to those little people of Bethlehem. And so when these, when these guys come into town, I'm sure people were put off guard. And I'm sure when they saw that star and they saw those men walking into that house, they were like, why are they going there? Like, what? That's strange. But these men, they have a purpose. They have a drive. It is to worship. And they walk into this home. And our passage says that they walk in and they see the child and they see his mother Mary. And what is their response? It says that they bowed down and worshiped him. Get this picture in your head, please, because it's powerful. Jesus at the time was probably about one to two years old. He was a little toddler, okay? Some of you have little toddlers at home. You can think of what a toddler is. Jesus, in between one to two years of old, he's probably learning how to walk. Mary probably has to stabilize him a little bit. 
as Jesus grew in stature. And so these wise men and just the lavishness of the Persian Empire, they walk into this room and they see this child. Now I'm sure these wise men didn't exactly know what to expect when they said that the king, the Messiah, was going to come. They probably didn't know what to expect. But I bet they didn't expect to see a toddler. Yet they walk in... And their response, whether he was the mightiest, mighty, like the, had all the crowns and all the riches, they bowed to that toddler just the same. It made no difference to them. Because after they came in, they realized that those prophecies were true. That that little toddler was the Savior, the King, the Messiah that they had been told about. He was real. He was true. He was alive. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Just picture these mighty men. These mighty men bowing before this little toddler. It's a fascinating picture to think about. They displayed the utmost humility. What's also incredible is that the wise men in the Persian Empire, historians say, give them the nickname, the kingmakers. Because the wise men were the the high counselors of the day. And there was not a king that was put into power without the wise men's consent and approval. And so a fascinating picture is that when these men step into that room and when they bow and when they give little Jesus these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that were only given to kings. It is symbolizing, it is showing that Jesus is their king. This little toddler Jesus. Because they knew through the prophecies that they had read, that they had been exposed to, that that little toddler was not going to stay that age. Because if Jesus had stayed that age, there would be no hope. There would be no savior. That little toddler Jesus was going to grow up to be a man who at 33 years of age was going to give up his very life so that his people could be saved from their sins. So that his people could have hope and redemption that would be everlasting. And they bowed and they worshiped. I think the order of this is, is, is interesting. They walk in. And they don't just shoot out their gifts to Jesus. They don't just say, oh, here, here's your gold, here's your frankincense, and here's your myrrh. We're going to go back to Persia. That's not what they do. They humbled themselves. They gave themselves. And then they gave their gifts. And I think it's significant. I mean, it's, 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 I'm sure they were just biting at the bit to, to give these things to him. My, my son Marcus, he's three, he turned three on Christmas Day. And it's been super cool to just explain the, more of the Christmas story and about who Jesus is and why he came. And so my wife had a cool idea. We took him to Dollar Tree and we let him pick out a gift to give to all of our immediate family members, okay? So we're, talk, we're going to Dollar Tree. I mean, we're not talking like high, high dollar stuff here. I think I got some slime 
from, from Marcus. But, we, but the thing about it was so cool. I mean, it was one of the highlights of my Christmas was when, he would, when he, we would give him the opportunity to give those little trinket gifts to his family members, there was just a joy. There was just a, just a, a happiness that came over his face. I mean, he, he was just, I mean, almost like he would stand in front of every family member and just like he was right there, just glued to them to see what their reaction was going to be to his gift that he had picked out. I think the, the, the wise men here had a very similar attitude. They were so excited and glad and willing to give him these gifts. They bowed, they worshiped, and then they gave. So what is our response to this story? Many of us, I think, are duped into thinking that that we can give, that we can serve in so many different ways, and because of doing all that, somehow God is more pleased and more satisfied with your life as a Christian. And the truth is, that is a lie from the pit of hell, because God and his favor, and his satisfaction, and his love, it rests on you, it is in you from the moment you accept him into your life, and it never changes, never changes. It doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter how much good or how much wrong you do, his satisfaction, and his favor, and his love never changes. There's nothing that we can give to him that will move him to change. He loves you no matter what, all the time. But what he does love is when we are looking to serve him, when we are looking to worship him, and when we are looking to glorify him with the talents and the abilities that he has given to us, with the platforms and the opportunities that he has given to us. And so in that way, I want to free us this morning from thinking that our worship to God is resigned only to reading our Bibles, praying, and coming to church on Sundays and singing some songs together, and then going home for lunch. That is so simplified compared to what God wants from us. God wants everything in our lives. He wants to use every facet of your life, every talent, every moment, every opportunity. He wants to use everything as an opportunity for you to worship him and to glorify him. I love in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, so whether you eat or whether you drink, and then he doesn't stop there, he says, or whatever you do. Do it all for the glory of God. I love that passage because it opens the door for so much freedom and so much joy because that passage symbolizes to us that our worship can flow out of our lives if we work hard at our job, if we sacrificially give our time to our kids and to our friends and to our peers to point them to Jesus. It can even be worship to God, husbands, to cook some dinner one night. 
everything we do has the opportunity to glorify our Savior and our Lord. Some things I wrote down is that it is worship to our Savior when we submit ourselves before him and choose to follow him, when we stop justifying our sin and seek his forgiveness, when we seek the needs of others before our own, when we humble ourselves to seek advice or correction, it is worship to our Savior when we work hard at our jobs and give our 100% effort. It is worship to our Savior when we utilize the talents and abilities God has given to us, and it is worship to our Savior when we sacrifice our time, energy, and finances to help someone else. These wise men, all they wanted to do was worship. We have an opportunity to worship with everything that we have. Reading our Bibles, we got to. Flows, it it, it compels our spiritual walk. It compels our worship. Reading our Bibles and praying is like throwing logs on the fire, okay? We've got to do that. If we're going to keep a fire, we've got to be relating with our God through his word and through prayer. He fuels our fire. He fans our flame when we realize more and more about who he is and what he has done for us. And we cannot do without this encouragement. It's vital for our worship to come together and to worship together, to sit under God's word together and to serve together. We need that. We all do. But let's allow this, the things that we so often resign our worship to, let's allow those to compel everything that we do in our lives. Let's not be the people that live just a Sunday to Sunday type of faith. Let's be Christians that live every single day with the goal and the mission to worship him. Maybe you're going into the, to the factory one day and you're just, you're just feeling down and, and you're just in the dumps. You have an opportunity to worship your Savior and your King by how hard you work. Maybe you're going into your day thinking, man, I just don't know if that relationship is ever going to be back to normal. I think what I said is just, it was too hurtful. You have the opportunity to go reconcile, and in that you are worshiping our king. Everything you do can worship our savior. That's what these wise men wanted to do. They came face to face with our savior. They realized who he was, and because they realized who he was, that drew them to bow. That little baby, as I said, he grew to die for your sins. Jesus, man, he could have, he, he should have had the grandest of entrances. He should have had the greatest welcoming party this world has ever seen, yet he chose to be born amongst animals in a manger. He chose to be greeted by shepherds who were social outcasts of the day and by men from a foreign country who are very mysterious That's how God chose to come. And when he chose to come in that way, he was symbolizing to the world that it didn't matter where you were at socially, 
He didn't care what your ethnicity was or what your background was. There was going to be nobody that was going to be held back from the love of God. And it symbolized that God will be worshipped. Even if his own don't, he will find people that do. I want us to be those people. I want us to be the church that God looks down on and, as Jim has constantly said, is sending lost people to because we are seeking to worship him through pointing other people to a relationship with him. Jesus gave up what he deserved so that he could give us something that we didn't deserve. Jesus, who is he? He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the victorious one, the truth, the way, the life, the savior, the redeemer. He is the light of the world. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is the first and he will be the last. And he is the great I am. He is the good shepherd that has the compassion and the ability to leave the 99 so that he can go rescue the one. That is our God. That is our Savior. And those wise men realized who he was. And when they realized who he was, they bowed their knee because they knew they had no other choice. Even as a little toddler king, they bowed. So this morning, let's take this story in a fresh way and let's be inspired. And let's, let's realize all together that Jesus deserves our worship. As I said, Jesus gave up everything he deserves so that he could give us a forgiveness, a freedom, a peace, a hope, a love, a grace, a mercy, and eternity that we never deserved. And he gave it all the cost of his own life that you can receive by believing in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came. Thank you that he was willing to give up his own life so that we could have life, so that we could have a relationship with you. Thank you for for allowing us to have that role of worshiping you with everything we do in our lives. Holy Spirit, help us. Give us wisdom and give us encouragement to live in that way so that others can look on our lives and bring praise to you because of how we are worshiping. We love you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.